our passage today is a, is a crossroads. It's a turning point, so to speak, in the history of God's people. It's here in this chapter that we transition from judges to kings, from leaders like Gideon and Samuel to rulers like David and Solomon. So much of what God will do in the future life of His people has its genesis here in 1 Samuel 8 with the beginning of Israel's monarchy. But surprisingly, that beginning doesn't start out so good. In fact, the overall tone of this chapter is quite negative. There's not so much reason to celebrate here as there is to be concerned. So, let's pick it up in verse 1 and see what God's Word has for us today as God's people. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your gain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Let's pray now and ask God to give us ears to hear with faith what He would say this morning. 
Father, we come before You now humbly asking that You would speak to us by Your Word. We praise You that You are a God who reveals Yourself, that You have not remained hidden or far off or distant from us. We ask now, God, that You would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from Your Word, wonderful truths. We pray that You would give us open ears and soft hearts. We pray that You would make us ready, Father, and receptive to listen, believe, and obey. Father, I pray that You would give me grace that... I would not speak anything that is untrue, but I would hold fast to the word of life and that you would grant us discernment as a church, Father, to know truth from error and to be built up deeply in the gospel. Father, we ask for your help now. We know that you hear us because our Savior and our Advocate is seated now at your right hand and we pray in his name. Amen. There is a danger lurking in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, as I say that, you might think to yourself, well, of course there is. We just read the passage and we heard about Israel rejecting God as their king. Of course we know there's a danger. We see it very clearly. But that's not the danger I have in mind. I'm thinking of the danger of distance. The danger of keeping God's Word at arm's length. As you heard just a moment ago, this chapter is full of fascinating history concerning Israel's kingship. There are questions to be answered. There are connections to be made. But if we're not careful, we can spend all of our time studying the history and fail to consider our lives in light of what God says. That's the danger lurking here. It's the danger of distance, of approaching God's Word from afar as though it just relayed facts. So let me put it very plainly. The most important question for us to answer today is not, what does this passage teach about kingship? No, the most important question is, what does this passage say about me and you? You see, friends, 1 Samuel 8 is a powerful example of how Scripture is the living Word of God. The living Word of God. In the most important sense, the Bible reveals God to us, who He is, what He is like, and what He has done in Christ. But along with that, the Bible also reveals us, who we are in relationship to God, and what His Word says about the state of our hearts and our need for His grace. I like how one theologian has put it, as we read the Bible, it reads us. As we read the Bible, it reads us. Or to Or think of what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 4 of his great epistle. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Friends, remembering that truth protects us from the danger of distance. It forces us to examine not just the history of the text, but also our lives in light of what God has said. So as we study this chapter today, by all means, let's understand the context and the history behind Israel's monarchy. Those considerations are absolutely necessary. But let's not stop with those considerations. Let's press further and ask that vital question, what does this text say about us in relationship to the living God? Specifically, here's how we'll pursue that question. We want to examine Israel's actions in this chapter. Both their decisions and their motives. And as we do that, we'll find that Israel's request for a king 
reveals the state of the human heart apart from God's grace. It reveals the state of the human heart apart from God's grace. Remember, friends, there's nothing new under the sun. The same impulse that led Israel away from the Lord resides in each of us. We are prone to buck against God's authority. We too want to pick our own king. And that's precisely why we need to listen to this chapter. By considering Israel's error, we find the help we need to submit ourselves afresh to the Lordship of Christ. So, with that in mind, I'd like to draw your attention to three aspects of Israel's error from 1 Samuel 8. You heard me right. Our three points are all negative. At least at first. Three aspects of Israel's error. It begins in verses 1-8 to with a rebellion against the life of faith. A rebellion against the life of faith. As the passage opens, God's people stand in need. Things have changed since chapter 7. In fact, the two chapters, 7 and 8, form quite the contrast. The stability and security of Samuel's earlier ministry has faded. And God's people once again stand in need of godly leadership. Notice what happens in verses 1-3. to Samuel appoints his sons to serve as judges over Israel. That seems innocent enough. But there's one problem. Samuel's sons don't share Samuel's character. Unlike their father, these men are wicked. They turn justice on its head by taking bribes. They favor the powerful over the weak. They favor the rich over the needy. Understand, friends, that's about the worst thing a judge could do of all the qualifications for a judge listed in the law. The first one was, don't take bribes. So at the most basic level, these men are not qualified to serve, no matter who their father is. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's because Eli did the same thing. He appointed his sons to serve as priests, even though they were in no way qualified for the office. It was a tragedy, it was a train wreck, and now it's repeated with Samuel. So the same question comes to the fore. Who will shepherd God's people to live according to God's Word? Who will lead them? You see, it's a pressing need, the need for godly leadership. Along with that, God's people also stand in need of protection. If we were to peek ahead to chapter 12 we would find some insight into Israel's life at the moment. Chapter 12 is Samuel's commentary on what happens here in chapter 8. And in that chapter, Samuel describes Israel as pressed by enemies on all sides. They have the Philistines on the west and the Amorites on the east. They're surrounded, in other words, and the people have begun to feel that pressure. This is hard for us to appreciate since we live in a large country that has friendly relations with our neighbors. But imagine that our mortal enemies lived just up the road in Conway. That's what this is like for Israel. People who want to wipe you off the face of the earth like a stone's throw away. That's their life. And it heightens their need for protection. So in light of those needs, the, the elders of Israel step in. They know the situation cannot continue as it is. Notice what they say to Samuel, verse 5. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Friends, that's the correct diagnosis of Israel's situation. 
Samuel can't continue forever, and his sons are not fit to serve. The elders of Israel are right that something must be done. But sadly, that correct diagnosis does not yield the right prescription. Notice what else they say in verse 5. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We have to think carefully at this point in order to see the problem with this prescription. The problem is not that they ask for a king. God did not prohibit Israel from having a king. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 anticipated exactly this moment. And through His Word, God gave clear instructions as to what an Israelite king must be like. So the problem is not with a king per se. The problem is with the kind of king Israel wants. They want a king like all the nations. That's the key phrase. It shows up here at the beginning and then again at the end of the passage like bookends. And in both instances, it clues us in that something is drastically wrong. Israel, the covenant people of God, wants a king like the Canaanites have. Canaanite kings were considered the embodiment of protection and provision. Some Canaanite peoples even considered their kings to be divine themselves. So to have a king like the nations was to have power. And most importantly, it was power that you could see and touch. The king was the flesh and blood sign, the guarantee of deliverance for your nation. And that's why Israel asks for a king. They want that kind of protection. They want that kind of provision. The kind you can see and you can touch and you can even control. And therein lies the problem. Israel already has a king who protects and provides for them. And that king is the Lord Himself. Notice the Lord's response in verse 7. Here we get God's perspective on their demand. The Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected Me from being king over them. Friends, do you see the horror of that demand? By asking for a king like the nations, the people seek a substitute for God. How quickly they forget the Lord's deliverance in chapter 7. How God thundered from heaven against the Philistines and drove them out of the land. How quickly they forget the Lord's deliverance at the Exodus and in the wilderness and on the shore of the Jordan and in the conquest of the land and at the walls of Jericho. In each of those moments, God delivered His people. And how did He do it? On the basis of faith. But now Israel wants something different. They no longer want to walk by faith. Trusting the Lord is hard, they say. No, they want deliverance on their terms, in a form they can see, and in a method they can control. This is not simply a request for a king. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. Something in the place of God. It's rebellion against faith in the one true and living God. Now, here is where we need to be on guard against that danger of distance we spoke about a moment ago. Since we don't have kings, we might be content with simply explaining Israel's error and then shaking our heads at their foolishness. And since we're not physically pressed by enemies on all sides, we might think there's little connection with us. We don't need a new king to fight our battles. We might think this is all distant from us and we would be wrong. 
Friends, do we not also at times dictate to God how and in what form His deliverance should come? We pray not to seek the Lord's face, but to tell Him what we need done and when. Do we not also look for ways to circumvent the difficult task of walking by faith and opt for something that appears easier to control? Listen, I'll confess there have been a number of instances in my life where I faced legitimate need and I did not want to walk by faith. I just wanted to get out of the situation. I just wanted things to be different. And sure, I may have muttered some prayer, but it didn't flow from a heart of trusting in the Lord. At that moment, I didn't want God. I wanted deliverance like everyone else had. Or to use the language of this passage, I wanted a king like the nation's. We should remember, brothers and sisters, that in every season, our Heavenly Father is doing work in us at the heart level. I pray that we catch this. God not only works for us to meet our needs, but He also works in us to bind our hearts to Him. In fact, that's, what's he, that's what He's doing most often in those seasons of need. He's showing us that our greatest need is always Him. So by all means, when when times are difficult, when seasons of need arise, freely express your prayer to God. Ask Him for deliverance. He wants you to pray those prayers. But along with that, we should also strive to say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. Brothers and sisters, that's a cry of faith that magnifies God. That's a cry of faith that trusts in the Lord. Our desire is ultimately not deliverance or protection or power, but God. God. Whatever comes, we want God. So I pray we would learn from this first point. Israel's rebellion against the life of faith helps us understand ourselves, how we're prone to do the same thing, just in different ways. And along with that, Israel's error also teaches us an essential component of living under God's lordship. It's to live in such a way that makes clear our hope is in God and not just what He might do for us. Well, as we continue on in the chapter, we see in verse 9 that God tells Samuel to grant Israel's request, but with one condition. Samuel must solemnly warn the people what to expect. And it's in this warning that we see Israel's second error, a refusal to follow the path of wisdom. A refusal to follow the path of wisdom. Beginning in verse 11, Samuel follows the Lord's instructions. He faithfully tells the people all that God has said. There are several facets of this warning that should get our attention. So notice them with me. First of all, Samuel warns of the abuse of power. There's a common refrain throughout the warning. Maybe you caught it as we read. It's the phrase, he will take. Six times, Samuel says, the king will take. He will take. He will take. That's what Israel can expect from a king like the nations. Abuse of power that consistently takes from others. Samuel goes on to warn that this abuse of power will touch every area of life. 
The king will take from Israel's families, their sons and daughters. He will take from Israel's fields, their crops and the best of their harvests. He will even take from Israel's households, their servants and their young men. So do you see the reach of the king's hand? It knows no boundaries. He greedily grasps for every area of life. Still, the warning keeps going. As Samuel stresses, the king's taking will be self-oriented. Notice the repetition of his throughout the warning. His chariots, his ground, his harvest, his implements of war, his officers, his servants, his work. So what's this kind of king concerned for? Not others, but himself. It's entirely self-oriented. And finally, Samuel's warning reaches its climax. What's the end result of this kind of king? Verse 17. And you shall be his slaves. Slavery is the end. What a sad irony this is. Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt and brought to enjoy life in the promised land. But here they are in the promised land on the cusp of slavery once more, except this time it's a slavery of their own making. Notice that emphasis in verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, here it is, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So God will give them what they want. One commentator said we should thank God for all the times that He doesn't answer our prayers for the things that we want. God will give them what they want. He will give them what they so desperately desire. And that desire will become the means of their oppression. Friends, is this not a clear picture of how sin works? Our hearts become fixated on some desire and we believe that desire is the key to our satisfaction, the means of our deliverance. And then once we get it, we find not satisfaction but slavery, not deliverance, but oppression. This is what scriptures, the Scriptures consistently present sin as doing. It's deceptive. Sin is lying to you always and in every instance. It's deceptive. It promises life, but in the end it only delivers death. So, let me just speak directly just for a moment. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know all the details of all of your lives. But, if your life is anything like mine, I do know that various temptations to sin stalk your steps, whispering promises of satisfaction. Last night, this morning, right now. Don't listen, friends. Learn from Israel's error. Listen to Samuel's warning. Sin is deceptive. It is always lying to you. Its promises never come to pass. It always leads to death. And it always gets found out, either in this life or on the last day. So I'm pleading with us all to hear God's Word at this point and continue on in the fight against sin. Friends, it is nothing short than the fight for life. So what should Israel expect from a king like the nations? Abuse of power in every area of life, selfishly oriented, resulting in slavery. That's Samuel's warning to the people. A king like the nations won't be good for them. It will actually bring great heartache. You see, that's the purpose behind the severe warning. 
The Lord is not angry with His people. I, I, please don't read Samuel's warning and think, man, God is really mad at them. He's not angry. He's actually showing them mercy. God is telling the people in advance what to expect. Friends, this is always how God's Word works in the life of His people. Even when it confronts us, that is an evidence of His kindness. That's how the warning works here for Israel in 1 Samuel 8. God mercifully shows them their error so that they might see His wisdom. But as you might expect by this point, Israel doesn't listen. That could really summarize like the whole Old Testament. Israel doesn't listen. Notice the stubbornness in verse 19. But the people refused... They refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Friends, that's some kind of hard-heartedness. I mean, the people have heard how bad things will be under a king and still they want what they want. They, they want what they want. They prefer their own counsel to the wisdom of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, do you see here the danger of a hard heart. This is the takeaway for us. So let's not keep it at a distance. Israel had all the necessary information to make the right decision. Did you notice that? They have all the information they need to make the right decision. They heard the truth of God from the mouth of God's prophet. It's like a phone line to heaven. And still they don't listen. Why? Why do they not listen? Because sinners like us don't simply need more information. We need new hearts. We need ears to hear. We need hearts that are soft to God's Word. Hearts that are tender and alive under the Spirit's conviction. Now, even as I say that, you might be thinking, but Jeff, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit indwelling my heart. I don't have to worry about something like hard-heartedness. To which I would say, remember Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, that's written to believers. To people like us. This is another thing sin always does. It always hardens the heart. It always hardens the heart. And, and therefore, when we read of Israel's stubbornness, we shouldn't scoff or shake our heads at how foolish they are. Instead, we should cry out, Oh Lord, how often I've been stubborn like Israel. How often my heart has been hard to Your Word. Maybe that's Your heart this morning. Friends, a soft heart is an incredible gift from God. A tender conscience is an unfathomable blessing. And it's one that we should seek regularly in prayer. Along with that, we should also remember that faithfully gathering with God's people to hear God's Word is the primary way that the Lord protects us from the hardening effects of sin. I hope you're reading your Bibles at home, but I want you to know that reading your Bibles at home is not enough to protect you from the hardening effects of sin. You need all these people, just like I do. This is how God keeps us in the faith together. It's why Hebrews 3.13 starts with exhort one another 
so that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need one another. This gathering together of the people of God is an evidence of God's kindness to protect us. Think of how that changes your view of coming to church. It's more than attendance. It's part of God's means of grace to keep your heart soft to His Word. So let's be faithful to pray, brothers and sisters. And let's also be faithful to gather and listen to God's Word together. Israel refused to follow the path of wisdom and in response, we are exhorted to remain vigilant against that same tendency in ourselves. One final section to go in the chapter. And it's here that we see Israel's third error, a rejection of the call to holiness. A rejection of the call to holiness. You'll notice that after Israel rejects Samuel's warning, the people go on to reiterate their reason for the demand. Look at verse 20. That we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, what's striking here is that this language echoes Israel's experience at the Exodus. In fact, if you go back and read Exodus chapter 14, this is what you'll find. God going before His people and fighting on their behalf. It's the same language. So the people want a king to do for them what God had already done and promised to do. Now consider what this means for Israel's identity. By asking for a king like the nations, the people are rejecting their identity as God's people. They're rejecting their identity as God's people. Remember, friends, this was the central truth of Israel's existence. They belonged to God. They were His people, redeemed, called, and set apart for Him and Him alone. Holiness was their calling because that's how God's character would get displayed in the world through the lives of His people. Recall that clear command from Leviticus 20, You shall be holy to Me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, or we could say the nations, that you should be Mine. So this call to holiness was central to Israel's identity. They were set apart for the very purpose of being different. But here in 1 Samuel 8, it's as if Israel throws away that identity. They just throw it away. By asking for a king like the nations, Israel is saying to the Lord, we're tired of bearing the mantle of your character. Holiness is hard, God in case you haven't heard, and we're weary from the pursuit. We want something easier. We want conformity. We want to fit in. You see, that's the greatest tragedy of Israel's demand for a king. They take the priceless treasure of belonging to God and they exchange it for the cheap, momentary relief of fitting in with the world. Now, I at this point, the scalpel of God's Word becomes quite sharp, doesn't it? Israel's desire for conformity sounds an awful lot like the church of our day. 
It seems that many churches today are more concerned with fitting in than they are with being holy. It's as if we can it's as, it's as if we think we can win the world by adapting its methods to carry our message. Friends, that's a fool's errand. God does not use the methods of the world. Read 1 Corinthians 1 to remind yourself of the methods God uses. It's the foolishness of the cross. The message of the Gospel is best adorned not with clever phrases and cultural coolness, but with holy lives. Holy lives. I know this sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. The more we seek to fit in with the world, the less we will know the Gospel's power in the world. Conformity kills witness. And let me just press this a bit further. I could go on for some time and rail about the lukewarmness of many churches, but that actually wouldn't be all that helpful. Instead, we need to recognize that any reformation begins not out there, but in here. It begins with us. I know holiness is hard. I know the desire to fit in is incredibly powerful. Who wants to be considered weird? Who wants to be viewed as strange? You know, cultural Christianity is collapsing all around us. And 50 years ago, if you told somebody you were a pastor, they probably wanted to shake your hand. Now they just want to get away from you. It's not fun to be distinct. But that's why Israel's error is so instructive to us. What will Israel's conformity get them? Only heartache and more trouble and the loss of their witness. Holiness is hard, yes, but the end is worth it. So, let's be willing to do the hard work of examining our hearts for evidence of this same area. In what areas are we seeking to fit in over being distinct? In what ways have we chosen conformity over holiness? There are some ways. What are they? Those are hard questions, but they're good questions as well. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring conviction where it's needed. Find a brother or sister whom you know who, who loves you and who knows your life and ask them, where, where do you see this in me? Again, friends, this is how God's Word works. As we read the Bible, it reads us. It opens us up so that we might grow. By God's grace, may that be true in our lives so that we grow in holiness together for the sake of the Gospel. Well, as our time draws to a close, we've seen from 1 Samuel 8 that Israel's monarchy begins not with a celebration, but with cause for concern. In asking for a king, the people rebel against the life of faith, refuse to walk the path of wisdom, and reject the call to holiness. Those are serious errors indeed. In fact, Israel's situation seems so troubling that the prospect of a remedy appears out of the question. How could anything good ever come out of this? Is there a remedy for such a wayward people? Yes, there is. And maybe surprisingly, God's remedy will come in the form of a king. 
But this king will be different. He will not be a king like the nations. Instead, he will be a king after God's own heart. You see, this is the beauty of God's grace on display even here in 1 Samuel 8. Though God's people have rejected Him as their King, the Lord will not forget His promises. He will not leave the people in their sin. No, God will raise up a faithful King for Himself. And it's from that King's line that salvation will come. That's what I want us to see as we close. There's a straight line from 1 Samuel 8 to King David, and then from King David on to the Lord Jesus. Christ is the King we need but do not deserve the mercy and grace of God that has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's not go out today without rejoicing in the hope of the Gospel. The Lord Jesus is a King like no other. He has not come to take for Himself, but to give of Himself. He laid aside His heavenly glory to take on the frailty of human flesh. He laid aside the praise of angels to receive the insults of His enemies. He laid aside the unlimited bounty of His Father's presence to know the broken poverty of this world. And most amazing of all, He laid aside His life to take on our death. This Christ is our King. And He is our Savior. So, brothers and sisters, may we see Him in His glory. And may His Lordship be seen in our lives to the praise of God's glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for opening us up through the Scriptures and applying the truth of Your Word to our lives through the work of Your Holy Spirit. We pray that our hearts would be soft and that we would respond, Father, with repentance and faith. That we would trust You, Father. We would remember, Lord, that the path of discipleship and following after Christ by faith leads to life. It's hard now. It's narrow now. But it leads to life. Father, we pray that You would magnify the Lord Jesus, Christ our King, in our midst by conforming us more and more to His image so that our witness in the world might be distinct and compelling and give an accurate testimony of who You are. We pray, Father, for You to magnify Yourself among us. In Christ's name, Amen. Let's stand and sing. See
future's fixed, our journey clear. God will not let us go. Every trial that tempts our hearts to fear, He'll use to give us hope. All creation groans as we await what our eyes have longed to see. Every pain and evil we've long endured will be crushed by Christ our King. Now to Him who's seated on the throne, all glory be forever. For the depths of wisdom, grace, and According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.